verses 4, 5, and 6. We have spent the last two weeks in verse 4, part A and part B. We are going to be in verses 5 and 6 today. However, we likely will not finish these verses, even though this was intended to be one sermon. It, it may be two. We'll see. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 is where we're going to really spend our time this morning. We'll read verse 4 to get a little context. The book has introduced us to Jesus. We've talked about that over the last 11 weeks of, of the importance of Jesus in the first three verses. And we just got into verse 4 last week, and we are getting into a section about angels. And uh, we are just briefly dipping our toe into the pool of all the discussion of angels today. But have no fear, there is much to be said. The, the book of Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2, the author is focusing on angels. And we will certainly be talking in the weeks to come about why that may be and some of the significance of that. And so today we are just barely going to broach the topics of angels, but as has been the case for the last 11 weeks, predominantly we are talking about Jesus today. We are still on this idea that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is better. We talked about in general Jesus is better, but in the context today as we will see, what the author of Hebrews is telling us in these verses is that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than many things in which we will see pointed out to us through the book of Hebrews. So let's read verses 4, 5, and 6, then we'll pray and jump in. So he, that is Jesus, so he became higher in rank than the angels, just as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, And all God's angels must worship him. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today and I thank you for your good word. And God, your word is so good, and it is so rich, and it is full of so many things that we need to hear, dear Lord. And I pray that as we continue to, to, to work our way through these passages in the book of Hebrews, God, that we do not miss the richness of your word, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be among us today, God, that your Holy Spirit would be with me and with each one of us, dear Lord, that, that I would be able to preach and teach your word that we would all be able to hear your word, dear Lord, and hear what we need to hear. God, some of these verses today are, are, are kind of confusing, dear Lord. We kind of have to get a little dirty today and dig into these things. But I pray, God, that you would help me to do a good job, to faithfully and accurately represent your word. I pray that you take away any fear or any pride that I have, dear Lord, that today it's all about you. And I pray, God, that you do a work through these verses and through this time that we have. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus is higher in rank, or as most of your translations will say, Jesus is better than the angels. And he's received a name that is better than theirs. And we talked about the name of Jesus last week. It's not just simply a collection of letters that sound a certain way that makes Jesus' name better than that of angels. 
I don't know that God was looking through a, a, a baby book of names and he says, well, Gabriel and, and Michael, those are good names, but Jesus is better. I'll just name the angels Gabriel and Michael. No, that's not, that's not what, it's, what it means when it says that Jesus has a name that's better than the angels. The name of Jesus, as we talked about last week, represents the person of Jesus. And so when we say the name, we need to think about who Jesus is and what that name represents. So Jesus has a name that is better than that of the angels. And then in verse 5, the author begins to make the case of, as to why Jesus is better than the angels. Now, angels certainly played a, a prominent role in, in God's work in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and, and here we see mention of angels again in the New Testament. So uh, angels are, are certainly important to the way God has done things and what role angels play currently. Well, we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. But the author here is beginning to make his first main point after his introduction of the greatness of Jesus as the Son of God. And he says here, Jesus is better than the angels, and he begins to bolster his argument in the same way perhaps a, a lawyer, if they're going to trial and they're trying to, they're trying to prove their point, they're trying to make their case. Okay, the author of Hebrews here is going to begin to make his case. I'm telling you that, the, that Jesus is better than the angels, and here is why. Here's the proof. Here is the evidence. And so he says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now what we see here in the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 in these next few verses that we're going to look at is we are going to see a lot of quotations from the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews goes back to the Old Testament quite frequently. And so he brings up an example here. Hey, I'm telling you that Jesus is better than the angels, and here is why. And he quotes a passage from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And that passage reads, I will declare the Lord's decree... He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Now this is something that's interesting for us to consider and hard for us maybe to understand or wrap our head around completely. There are many passages in the Old Testament that were written by someone, that were written about something that was going to happen at that time, yet those passages also apply to Jesus in his time. Now this psalm in Psalm 2 is a psalm of David. And so David is, is, is writing this, but, but as we look at some of these things, it appears as though God is speaking through David, or David is seeing some things. And, and maybe even sometimes when David is just simply recording his own life and his own situations, those things apply to Jesus. Now, these things we may not pick up on. There are certainly times that we see Old Testament passages that we may not would make that connection that they are speaking of Jesus. Yet, yet sometimes in the New Testament, the New Testament writers say, hey, and this passage in the Old Testament spoke of Jesus in this way. And this is one of the passages that's referenced. He says, Jesus is better than the angels, and it even says so in the Old Scripture. Now, we must keep in mind that the audience that is reading this letter, they didn't have a Bible, so to speak, in the way that we do. They certainly didn't have a New Testament. It was, it was still those letters and those uh, prophecies or revelation were still being written at that time. So they didn't have a New Testament. They, they did, however, have, have some collection of the Old Testament scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, 
And that's referred to as the Septuagint. Now, that's a big fancy word. You'll need to know that for the test. If you've ever heard it and you say, what is that? Or maybe you see it sometimes in the footnotes of your Bible. Well, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of a lot of the old Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. And that was written about 250 years or so before Jesus came onto the scene. The Septuagint, uh, you may see the initials sometimes, LXX in your Bible, and you may have never known what that means. When you see the letters LXX, that's the Roman numeral for 70. The reason why that is often applied when the Septuagint is referred to is because the tradition said that there were 70 translators that translated from the Hebrew into the Greek and formed the Septuagint. So if you ever see the letters LXX in your Bible or your study Bible, you'll know that it's referring to the Septuagint. You say, well, why are you giving us this history lesson? Well, it's going to become important for us here in just a few moments. So in this particular passage that the audience would have known of from what we call the Old Testament, they would have known of this passage, and the author of Hebrews says, look, this passage in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is speaking about God. It's speaking about Jesus. And the passage says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So what is, what is unique about this passage? Well, there may be something that's unique about this passage that may not be obvious to us at first glance. What is the day that is being referred to there in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7? Is, if this is speaking of Jesus, is there a day in the life of Jesus in which it could be said that today Jesus is declared the Son of God in some significant or important or unique way? Well, thankfully... The New Testament sheds some light on this subject. Now, we may be tempted to think, and maybe correctly so, that when, when God begot Jesus, not that Jesus was created, Jesus is certainly eternal, he has always been, but in the sense that Jesus came to the earth as a man, as we are, uh, when he was begot by God, when God was with Mary in the Spirit and Jesus was born, Jesus didn't have an earthly father, but God was his father, And so perhaps in that sense, we could say, okay, perhaps this is the day. Not that Jesus was created on that day. Jesus is eternal. He's not created. Let's make sure that we understand that important truth. And we see that time and time again throughout the Scripture. But in the sense that Jesus became man in that day. Now, that certainly could be a day that we could refer to as the day that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, at least in a unique sense, in the way that we think of him in his ministry, in the way that he served, uh, as we see throughout the Scripture. But Paul seems to use this same passage in a different way. In Acts chapter uh, 13, verses 32 and 33, Paul had been talking in the context here. He'd been talking a lot about Jesus. He'd been telling the people about Jesus. And as he gets to the end of the story of Jesus as the Messiah and the good news, of course the story ends with the crucifixion, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul had been talking in the verses before this about the resurrection of Jesus and the importance of that, the significance of that. And in verse 32, he says, And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. Now, he's talking about Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus being raised up, and he says at the end of this passage, this all takes place as it is written in Psalm 2, verse 7, which says, 
You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, it appears as though Paul sees the same passage that the author of Hebrews is quoting, and Paul here attributes this to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that is the day, that today, that, that the day that Jesus Christ fulfilled to obedience, to death on a cross, the Father's will, that he would die and do exactly as God said, that is the day that made Jesus uniquely the Son of God. Now, certainly through Scripture, you could say, well, angels are referred to as the Son of God. Adam is referred to as the Son of God. God's people are sometimes referred to as sons of God. Jesus is the Son of God, but in a unique way. And certainly there is one thing that makes Jesus unique, and that he has been perfectly obedient to the will of God all the way to death and death on a cross. So in Acts 13, Paul quotes this passage, which in some sense may seem kind of out of place because He's speaking of the resurrection of Jesus, and he says, hey, so this passage could be fulfilled, so what is written will be true, that today you have become my son, and I have become your father. We see further, further use of this idea by Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, when it speaks of Jesus, and it says, he has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Okay, again, He's talking about Jesus being declared the Son. And what does he say is the, is, the, is, the, is the main key point to this when he speaks of Jesus being declared the Son? By what is he declared the Son of God? By his resurrection. So there's, there's something to be said here about this passage in connection to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as we see the life of Jesus Christ, one, he was faithful and he was obedient to the will of God from beginning to end. And we talked about last week that it pleased God to call him son. Twice God does so. When Jesus is baptized and at the event of the Mount of Transfiguration where God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus as the son is, is unique and that Jesus was obedient to God from beginning to end. And so the author of Hebrews here says, look, Jesus is better to, than the angels and here's why. Because God has called him son. Because he's been given a name that is above all names. That is the name that is above all names. That is the name that is greater than the angels. Angels are but servants of God. But Jesus is the very son of God. So that's the first, that's his first argument that he's making to his audience here to say, Jesus is better than the angels because God has called him son. Let's continue on in the next part of this verse. Or again, okay, so he's making his next argument. First argument, Psalm 2-7. Next argument, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, this is a very important passage. You will see this in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, I believe, uh, or the verse we're going to read, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 17, verse 13. Kind of the same thing, just recorded in two different spots. But, but before... The first king that came for the, for the nation of Israel, even though God should have been their king and they should have served God and they requested to be like the other nations, that's a whole other sermon, they rejected God as their king. They asked for an earthly king. They got an earthly king by the name of Saul, not the same Saul who became Paul in the New Testament, another Saul. He didn't really do a very good job. So God ripped the kingship away from him. 
But he, he had another one picked out, a guy by the name of David, and you may have heard of him, the story of David and Goliath. And David, while he certainly was not perfect and he had some, 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 some sin in his life, he was the one that God chose. And, 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 and more times than not, I mean, David is a good example. I mean, he did some bad, but, but David was a man after God's own heart. And God had made David this king and and he makes a promise to him in 1 Samuel chapter 8, or in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And he says in this promise, he says, look, I am going to bless you, and there's going to be somebody that's going to come from you that's going to sit on the throne forever. Now, certainly in the context, David was going to have a son. And that passage speaks about a son who was to come. David was certainly going to have a son. Now, David wanted to build this temple for God, but God said, no, you're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. And so there certainly is going to be a son that was going to come from David and Solomon. But, but oftentimes when we see the, the phrase son of David in Scripture, it's simply speaking of a descendant of David. And so this idea that there was going to come one who was going to rule on the throne of David forever and be a son of David, maybe not a biological son that, 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 that he was going to see birth given to in his lifetime, but at some point in time, through the bloodline of David, God says, look, I am going to bless you. I'm going to establish my kingdom by one who is going to come through you. And we see that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 8. We also see it in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 13. And he says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. I will not take away my faithful love from him, as I took it from the one who was before you. Now, this is one of those passages that... It's speaking of something in the moment, in the, in the immediate context of David. David is going to have a son who is going to sit on the throne. But it's also speaking of Jesus who is going to come later. Now, this is, this is one of those things like we just talked about a few minutes ago, that there are scriptures that we can look at and we can sometimes refer to those as dual fulfillment. That is, there's something that, that they spoke of in the context when they were written but they were also pointing us to Jesus. Now, how do we know if a passage is one of those that is dual fulfillment? Well, really, in some of the instances, the only way we know is that the New Testament writers tell us that that's the case. Now, we have to be careful with that because sometimes we see a passage and we say, oh, well, there must still be some fulfillment for that passage because it doesn't appear as though that has already occurred. Well, that may or may not be true. The reason why we can say for sure that some passages are dual fulfillment is because the New Testament writers, sometimes even Jesus himself, says, oh, this Old Testament scripture was talking about this. However, if we go through the Bible and we say, well, I think this scripture could be talking about something else, but it could be talking about something in the future, well, I don't know if that's a good practice or not, because how can we be sure that we know that those passages are speaking of such things? We can be sure of some because the Bible tells us that the Bible is right in that. Nonetheless, this is one of those passages that seems to be clear that it's speaking of Jesus also. It's speaking of Solomon. There's going to be one that's going to come after, after David. But ultimately, it's speaking of Jesus. And part of the evidence for that is this passage right here, that the author of Hebrews tells to us 
He quotes it when he's making his case. First case, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Next case, 2 Samuel chapter uh, 8, verse 14, or, or uh, uh, Chronicles chapter 17, verse 13. He makes his case. Or again, and what's the case? He says at the beginning of that verse, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This is exact, exact uh, language, exact words from what we see in the Old Testament. One quick example of, of, of dual fulfillment and how passages, we may not realize that they're speaking about something to come, but sometimes they are, uh, and we see that pointed out to us by New Testament authors, is another passage from uh, Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. This is the Psalm of David, and it reads, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Now, David certainly had many people who were against him, probably some that he trusted, that he, that he thought were his friends, and they came against him. Okay, this is, a, this is a psalm that was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And should you just read through this psalm, you may not even attribute this to Jesus in any way. Yet Jesus himself says that this psalm was speaking about him. In John chapter 13, verse 18, he's, he's uh, with the disciples here, and he says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. Now, Jesus here in this context is, is toward the end of his life is acknowledging that one of his disciples are not going to remain faithful to him. And in fact, Judas is going to betray him. And what does Jesus say here? He says, so that the scripture must be fulfilled. And so we certainly can say, oh yeah, Psalm 49, 41.9 is, is, is a, dual, a, a, a dual fulfillment of scripture, something that obviously happened in David's time, but something that ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ. And so we see scriptures like this from time to time in the scripture that the New Testament point out to us. And sometimes they're a head scratcher because it's like, man, I would never make that connection. I would never apply that Old Testament passage to this thing in the New Testament. But yet sometimes New Testament writers do that. Paul and uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus and John chapter uh, 13, uh, verse 19. And so we see that idea. That's a little, a little off track, I know, but it's important for us to realize these arguments that he's making and the importance of some of these passages because you may go back and read some of these passages that are referenced as we go into the next verse, and you may say, wait a minute, I'm not so sure my Bible doesn't quite say that or I'm not sure how to make that connection. But we can be assured that the connection is there because we have, we have further proof and argument of that by the New Testament writers as they are writing the inspired Word of God. And so he makes the argument here, hey, look, this, this is going to be my son and I am going to be his father, a direct quotation from what God had spoken to David. Let's read on through the next part of the verse. All right, here's, here's where we're, we're fisting to get, really have to dig into some stuff that might make us scratch our head a little bit. Verse 6, uh, when he again brings his firstborn into the world. Now, some of your translations there are going to say, when he again, which upon first glance, we may read that and say, okay, it's speaking of, of some future return of Christ, and that could be uh, how that should be read. However, some of your translations will just say, are again, or something along those lines. Now, it's very difficult when you translate from any original language that the Bible was written in into English, or from any language into English for that matter. 
Uh, the translators of my particular translation have uh, chosen to say, and when he again, which seems to imply uh, a future return of Christ. Now this, of course, may be the proper reading of the text. Some would argue that it is. Uh, however, it doesn't seem to fit the context of what we're talking about. He's making, he's making arguments. He says the first argument, or again, the second argument, or again, the third argument. And that seems to fit the context that he's simply speaking, building from one argument to the next, from one Old Testament passage to the next, or from one other, maybe New Testament passage to the next that speaks of Jesus. The author of Hebrews does a similar thing as we get into chapter 2. He says something, or again this, or again this. And so he's, he's bolstering the argument. And so it seems to me, and maybe incorrectly so, that it, it, maybe the proper reading here is just to say, or again, talking about the firstborn. However, it could be proper to say that when he again returns. We could certainly make an argument that both of these things are true from Scripture. We're kind of splitting hairs there, but there is a difference in what your translations may say, and uh, which, which way is exactly the correct way, uh, I'm not sure. But it seems to make more sense that he's saying this, and again this, and again this, and again this, because he's building his argument, as if, if, if I were going to make an argument that Tom Brady was the best quarterback in all of history, and you would say, well, how can you say such? And I could say, well, look at the Super Bowls he's won in 2002, or again in 2003, or again in 2005, or again in 2015. Notice I didn't take 2018 because he lost to the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, I wouldn't bring that up, of course, unless I was a Philadelphia Eagles fan, but the point still stands. Tom Brady is, unarguably, the greatest quarterback of all times because he won again and again and again. And that's kind of the idea, I think, that the writer of, of Hebrews is making here. He's bolstering his argument as to why Jesus is better than the angels. All right, so again, he speaks of his firstborn being brought into the world. Okay, so which being brought into the world is, is this speaking about when Jesus comes, when he, is, when he is born of the Virgin Mary? Is this speaking about a, a, a future return of Christ in some way? What is, what is this speaking of here? Well, we can, you can decide for yourself what you think the context there may be saying, but the important thing I think that we need to see in this part of the passage is the title that we see of Jesus here, that he is referred to as the firstborn. Now, we want to make sure that we that we're not confused that Jesus was not created that certainly is a teaching that you may sometimes come across that Jesus is created that at some point he came into existence but the scripture is pretty clear that Jesus is eternal in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh that's John chapter 1 that, of course, speaking of Jesus. And so Jesus is unique in that way. He is eternal in that way. Of course, whenever he came to this earth in the form of a human, human, it was also a unique thing. He's the firstborn of all creation. We see that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Some have said uh, perhaps it's better to understand that as Jesus being referred to as the preeminence of all creation. And as we see in that passage in Colossians, that all things were, were created through Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus. And so uh, he is over all things and above all things. And the firstborn of creation in that sense that all things were created through him, but not in the sense that there was a time that Jesus didn't exist and then Jesus existed. No, Jesus 
has always existed. Jesus is eternal, and Jesus will always be eternal. And so we see this idea, perhaps, of Jesus as the firstborn. We also see uh, in a few verses down in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, this is another way that we see Jesus referred to as the firstborn, the firstborn of the dead, in that Jesus was nailed to a cross for our sins. He was beaten. He was mocked. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was nailed to a cross, and he was placed in the tomb. But three days later, God raised him from the dead. God did not let death have the final say. Jesus lived a sinless life, therefore he conquered sin and went to the cross as a sacrifice for the sin that you and I commit. But God didn't allow him to stay in the grave. Not only did he conquer sin, but he conquered death by the power of God because he was an obedient son and followed the will of God. And so as a result, he's the firstborn of the dead. That is to say that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will also not be not the, death will not be the end of our life we too will be raised from the dead so jesus was the first but he's the first of many who would put their faith and trust in him that the victory that jesus had over sin we can have over sin through jesus that the victory that jesus had over death that we gain victory over death through Jesus. And who is Jesus referred to here? He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of the dead. And so we see that language in verse 6 when he again brings his firstborn into the world. What does he say? And God's angels must worship him. Now, the first two uh, references we looked at, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, those are pretty much word for word from what we see in the Old Testament to what is being quoted here. However, in this last part of verse 6 where it reads, and all God's angels much worship him, well, again, he's speaking of something that has occurred, a reference in what we would call the Old Testament. And so where is he getting this reference from? This is where it gets a little, we have to get our hands a little bit dirty in trying to understand this because... What you may see in your Bible is you may see a reference to something like uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, or Psalm chapter 97, verse 7. However, if you read both of those passages, it doesn't say that. And so why in the world is the author of Hebrews quoting from something, and, and, and by all accounts, the references that, that any, any expert or any study Bible or any commentary will tell you to turn to, and yet you turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, verse 43, and it speaks about the vengeance of God and says nothing about angels worshiping. I, I double-checked when I first was studying this, uh, whenever it was, a week or two ago, and I was like, wait a minute, I must have read the wrong verse. And then I looked at Psalm 97.7, which is also referenced, referenced. And sure enough, it doesn't say anything about the angels worshiping uh, the sun either. So what? either something's going wrong here or there's misprint or I'm missing something. And I was certainly missing something. And this is a head-scratcher because you read here where, as following the argument that he's been making and quoting from Old Testament passages, he says here, and God's angels must worship him. So where does this come from? Well, it seems clear upon further review that the writer of Hebrews was quoting from the Septuagint. 
that fancy word we talked about a little bit ago. And the Septuagint is somewhat different from our translations. Now that begs the question, is the Septuagint a more reliable translation? After all, they would have had, the, the, the manuscripts that they would have been copying from would have been written much closer to the time than it was written, that is, until the time that, that we wrote the Bible in languages that we can understand. Some would argue that perhaps the Septuagint is the better translation. That's a topic for another day. Regardless, the writer of Hebrews seemed to think that the Septuagint was a good translation. That is what the people of Jesus' day would have read. That's the scriptures that they would have known. And there must be significance to those passages, even though they differ from what our translations typically would say, because the author of Hebrews quotes something that both of those passages would say in the Septuagint. However, neither of those passages say those things in our translations. For example, I'll read to you Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And it is likely in most of your translations, it will read something like this. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. And then in Psalm 97, 7, your translation probably reads something similar to this. All those, or excuse me, all who served carved images, those who boast in idols, will be put to shame. All gods, all the gods must worship him. Now, the observant person who may be reading along or listening says, well, that don't say not a single thing about the angels of God worshiping the Son of God. And in fact, it does not in most of our translations. However, in the Septuagint, it does say that. In the Septuagint, that it appears that the writer of Hebrews would have been uh, quoting from here. It does say that, and that would have been a writing that his audience would have been familiar with. In the Septuagint, Deuteronomy 32, verse 30, 43, says exactly what I just read to you, but it starts with this. Rejoice with them, with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all angels. Ah, well, that makes more sense. That fits what the writer of Hebrews is telling us when it talks about the angels of God bowing down before, before Jesus. And so that part that's in the Septuagint that may or may not be in your translation appears to be what the writer of Hebrews is referencing here. Same thing in Psalm chapter 97, verse 7. At the end of that particular passage, in most of our Bibles, it will say something along the lines of, all the gods must worship him. Now, the word there for gods is Elohim. That's a word we see sometimes in Scripture that we translate as God. However, in the Septuagint text, it reads, and all the angels must worship him. Now, that's almost exactly, if not exactly, what the writer of Hebrews is telling his audience here. So the writer of Hebrews, the first couple of, of, of references there are easy for us to see. The last one, we have to do a little bit of study. We have to kind of research that to figure out, okay, is there some contradiction? Is there something wrong with the Bible? Well, not so much. But we do realize that, hey, Bible translation is pretty difficult. It's not, it's not a cut and dry thing. But the purpose of the text is clear for the author of Hebrews. And now that we understand the passages that he was pulling from and where he was pulling them from, we can understand what the author of Hebrews is saying. And that is this, Jesus is better than the angels. Now, we'll talk 
We were going to talk about that today. We will not for time's sake because we simply do not have time. But we will, Lord willing, uh, Sunday after next, we will begin to dig into what the purpose of this is and what the meaning of this is. Now, sometimes sermons like these are kind of, are kind of difficult because, because sometimes you kind of have to just dig in, you have to do the dirty work, and you have to get the background to be able to understand the message and the significance of the message that's going to be taught. I wrestled with this passage this week, and I was like, okay, well, I could say it all, but it's going to take an hour, or I could cut it in half, or we're going to have to just kind of leave ourselves hanging. And as much as I hate to do it, it's so rich and it's so good. I said, we can't skip over these passages until we get them, so we got to get them. So hopefully today we get them a little bit and we understand a little bit about what's being said here about the fact that Jesus is better. And why is Jesus better? It's because God has called him son. And Jesus is uniquely the son of God because he was obedient to God and the will of God from beginning to end. And that is what makes Jesus different than the angels. Because even the scripture talks about those angels who, who, who left their place of serving God. Sometimes we refer to those as fallen angels. Not all the angels remained obedient to God. Not all the angels wanted to do the will of God. We see that God calls Adam the son of God and that we come from Adam as human beings. We sometimes who put our faith in God are called sons of God. But guess what? We fail too. We don't live in full obedience to God. We don't live by the will of God. And so for that that reason, when Jesus is called the Son of God, he is unique because he is the faithful Son who has never failed, praise the Lord. And that's why we can sit in this room today. Because if Jesus would have failed, then we would be hopeless. There would be no more sons of God who could fulfill what God desired and what God required. And that was a perfect sacrifice for our sins. But we come here today and we praise God that Jesus is a faithful Son of God so that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we will be called sons of God. That when we stand before God, that we can know with assurance that Jesus has taken the punishment that you and I deserve when he was nailed on the cross so that we can receive the grace and the love and the mercy and the gift of God that only Jesus deserved. But yet we receive that through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ received our punishment for us uniquely as the Son of God. And what changed everything is when Jesus Christ was raised from that grave. That God was pleased to call Jesus Son. He was pleased to raise him from the ground. He was pleased to give us eternal life through him. And so, yes, Jesus is better than the angels and praise the Lord that he is. He's better than us and praise the Lord that he is because salvation comes through no other than through Jesus Christ. Let us call on the name of Jesus Christ on the Son of God today. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for these good words. And I pray, God, that we, when we read your word, that we would see scripture after scripture and again and again and again the goodness of your word, the promises of your word, the the, the things in your word that are good and the things in your word that are scary to us, dear Lord. Let us, let us see every aspect of what your word says. God, as we read through this book of Hebrews, let us understand the significance of the point that the writer is making and telling us of how great Jesus is. And God, let us read it. Let us know it. Let us experience it, dear Lord, that, that in our life, 
if there is one here in this room today that does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today that Jesus would be their Lord and their Savior, that today, God, they would call on your Son, that today, God, they would call on the only one who has lived a sinless life and the only one who has been raised from the dead to grant assurance for forgiveness of sin and salvation and resurrection for all of the rest of us, dear Lord. So I pray that if there is one that does not know Jesus today, that they would know him. God, I pray that maybe there are some here in this, in this place that do know Jesus today. And even though they know Jesus is good, maybe today they need to be reminded that he's better. He's better than these angels and he's better than whatever it may be that, that, that we are up against in our life or, or whatever it may be that we are tempted by in our life. God, let us not forget that Jesus is better. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.